0: Sometimes in the West, people like the kind of adrenaline of a China crisis story. I don't see this as a crisis because I think it has been in the planning for a long time.
1: In my personal experience, the problem is not about people getting old. The real problem is their physical and mental health, Mm -hmm. and who should be the primary caregiver when our seniors are sick or bedridden.
2: A few of my friends actually got um, what they called the Chinese green card, but it was very, very difficult uh, indeed, and we thought perhaps too difficult. So maybe that, yes, that is a way forward that will alleviate some of the stress. And and I think there are lots of expats who are very, and I I was one of them, very happily settled and would like to contribute more and also move to other parts of China as well, outside first-tier cities. So I think that is an opportunity perhaps the central government and others should explore, and they may find that is actually far easier and far more beneficial. The chat lounge
3: chat lounge chat lounge
2: the chat lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way welcome to
3: the chat lounge i'm to you and joining our discussion on china's aging population are dr lauren johnston associate professor at the china studies center university of sydney australia mike Baston, china observer and senior lecturer the University of Southampton in the UK and Liu Yun, Associate Editor-in-Chief of Beijing Review here in China. A warm welcome to you all. So China is expected to see the biggest ever wave of uh, retirement over the next decade. It has reported some 20 million seniors from the generation born in the 1960s will retire every year until 2033. And by 2040, over 30% of the country's population, or some 420 million people, will be above 60 years old. That's equivalent to the combined populations of Russia, Germany, the UK, France, and Italy. It means almost one in three people in China will be in their 60s in less than 10 years, compared to almost one in five now. So Yuan, I'd like to start with you. What is your intuitive feeling about the aging Chinese society? Are you surprised by the numbers at all?
1: Uh, thank you, uh, Tui. Uh, you know what, I'm not surprised at all because I don't just see the numbers. I, I feel the numbers and I live with the numbers. Mm. And my parents were born in the, in the 1950s and they retired a few years ago. And I'm the only child in the family. So when my grandpa complained that only four of his six children went to look after him when he was hospitalized. I told him, don't be upset, just think of my father, one of his sons, who would only have one child to turn to if he were in that same situation. Mm. But but luckily, my parents have been very open-minded about this, and they got used to the fact that their only child has to work in a city 1,000 miles away, and they have to take care of themselves. But let's go beyond my family and look at the bigger picture. From 1950 to 2020, in just 70 years, the total fertility rate in China dropped from 6 to 1.3 births per woman. You see, that's exactly what's happening in my family, from Mm. one couple, six children, to now one couple, one child. Mm. And life expectancy rose from 44 to 77 years during this period. So in my personal experience, the problem is not about people getting old. The real problem is their physical and mental health Mm -hmm. and who should be the primary caregiver when our seniors are sick or bedridden. And there just are not enough young people to support them economically, physically, and most importantly, mentally.
3: Mm. Actually, those problems are for us to worry about, especially the one-child generation like you and me. We will talk a little bit more about that uh, later in the show. But to Laura, maybe, as a scholar specialized in um, the research on China's demographic issues, has the aging speed surprised you at all, especially when you when compared with, with that of uh, developed nations?
0: Um, thanks very much for the question. I don't think it has surprised me, in part because in China's case, it was not strictly driven by policy, like some people say, that the one-child policy did help to reduce the total fertility rate. But actually, as you noted, that a lot of the TFR decline had already begun in the nineteen seventies, and that was thanks to the longer, later, fewer campaign. Mm. And so, you know, demographics is a slow-moving. It's a slow-moving force. So if one. Watches the movement each year, and from the data, I, I think it's not that surprising. Um, I, I think what has happened since the 1980s is less of a Chinese phenomena and more of a globalization phenomena. That globalization helped to spread technology, and that includes birth control mechanisms, that includes access to education and travel for women that you know wasn't as readily available before it it opened up a world to people and it opened up a world to places like china and vietnam indonesia increasingly india when these countries were not per capita rich they weren't rich countries so you know china's growth also happened much much quicker than french growth Mm. it happened much much quicker than spanish growth italian growth these really long demographic transition countries like That's a function of the lateness. And Vietnam, the transition is happening even quicker. Vietnam's a bit behind China. So I don't think it's a surprise, which doesn't strictly make it easy to cope with either. But I I think it would be a a, a bit too much to call it a surprise.
3: Right. Then would you say that we are now actually in some crisis here? In China, as, um, you know, some China observers in the West especially talked about.
0: I don't, I, I, I think there's, you know, sometimes in the West people like the, the kind of adrenaline of a China crisis story. I don't see this as a crisis because I think it has been in the planning for a long time. And the idea that once China got almost to the high income group, that Chinese women would start having a lot of babies or once the one-child policy family was, one-child policy was ended, that Chinese women would suddenly start having two or three children, I don't think that was the rational expectation of anybody because that's not what women in Europe are doing. That's not what women in Singapore or South Korea or Japan, like that's not the behavior of women in modern economies and with, with amazing opportunities anywhere. So therefore, I don't think it's a surprise even if you look at the neighbors and I don't see it, it, it is a different type of challenge in that the world has never been home to countries with so many old people. And it may bring some hardship, especially in countries where the care system is less prepared. But um, I don't think it's a crisis per se, because people have known about these trends for a long time. And perhaps the idea of a crisis might help allocate resources like a lot of problems are just about who gets access to the resources yeah. there may be some resources there but they go somewhere else so going into crisis mode may help to reallocate some resources to needy seniors which would be very positive
3: positive. and mike from uh, your perspective as a china observer after hearing those figures what's your response to that
2: I think I'm broadly in agreement with with Laura, and I I certainly wouldn't use the word crisis, and Mm. the figures, your first question I think was a very good question, The, the figures aren't a surprise. We've known for a long time that there's you know, there's rapid wealth that, that now is spreading across China. We're seeing second and 3rd tier cities become quite attractive commercially. We're seeing more investment, long-term investment internationally into China, more integration with the world economy. So people will live longer. And we're, and, and we're also seeing the average retirement age still is one of the lowest in the world. I think something like 54 on average. And, and for women, it can be younger than that. And we're also seeing that the the end of the one-child policy did not really uh, result in the intended, perhaps slight increase in the fertility rate that continues to decline. So, but I wouldn't use the word crisis. I think we're seeing a lot of positive comments and, and policy initiatives, which I'm sure we're going to discuss soon, coming sure. from the central government. Mm-hmm. And also, let's you know we're working to a, a sort of outdated model when we, we talk about not having enough younger people to support the older people. Uh, as Lauren says, if the the social support systems, the healthcare system. Uh, and generally, societal support is there. These people are not just living um, longer and, and uh, are becoming older and older. They can be quite healthy, healthier, and also active. And also, in terms of support, they don't necessarily need the amount of younger people to support them with the the advent of technology, digital technology, uh, and and all the, that that goes for automation of the economy. So, I, I think it can be turned into a positive in in a very short space of time. But certainly, the numbers are. Greater and perhaps the situation is a little bit more serious in China than other parts of the world, the developed world, and particularly France, where we do see healthcare costs lower, childcare costs are are much lower. That's very significant. But but I think that let's look at this positively.
3: Yeah, Mike is always thinking about turning things uh, positive. But how positive can we be? You know, there is also a huge problem there. Former central bank governor Zhou Xiaochuan has warned that the as China's population ages, a, a crack could easily open up in the already limited pension pool. And uh, according to China's Academy of Social Sciences, the country's national pension fund is likely to be depleted by 2035 amid a widening disparity among regional funds. As you've already mentioned, who's going to you know, support us when we turn old?
1: Yeah, 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 this is a this is a very uh, important question, mm. and um, uh, I, I think he mentioned a, a very important issue, which is the uh, the crack in this uh, uh, pension pool, yeah. and that's why the Chinese government is considering adding another pillar to that the the original two pronged approach mm. to pension fund, which is uh, including in private capital to invest. Um, well, to give, offer insurance, like in, to offer a pension. But I think Mike mentioned a very important uh, question problem uh, in the Chinese pension system. And he mentioned, and I totally agree, that the minimum contribution years in Chinese pension is very low. I mean, let's look at the uh, the years, uh, the minimum number of years of pension contribution in China is 15 years for each individual. Then you could get covered by the basic pension fund when you retire at 60 years old for men and 50 years old for women. And the number of the years was settled a few decades ago and hasn't been changed. So the problem is a lot of people choose to stop contributing to their pension fund after 15 years. But with the rising life expectancy, people live way longer. So who should be filling the gap? So what I'm suggesting is, well, a lot of people are also suggesting extend the mandatory contribution years by, let's say, uh, 10 or 15 years, which means to contribute more to the pension fund when we still have the ability to work. Mm. But I'm sure that will spark a lot more debate across the nation. And just as people are not comfortable of retiring at an older age.
3: Right. Lauren, help me out here. What does your study say about it?
0: I haven't studied the retirement age directly uh-huh. um, and compared. Obviously, it's. I mean, there's protests almost every day in Paris about this at the moment, yeah. um, because they're trying to increase the retirement age i think china's situation is quite unique on pension age first of all because there's several different retirement ages depending on your gender your industry and so on so it's even quite complex to work out mm. if you're not like a deep expert who's Indeed. paying for how long but in the current sense of population aging a lot of china's workers who are now around retirement age, they started working very young because they didn't have much educational opportunity. Mm -hmm. And then they did mostly very manual labor jobs, which is very different to today's retirement age people in the West. I mean, the West has its own retirement age problems. But I think in China's case, you know, the current retiring crop, they started work very young they had very few educational opportunities and in many cases they weren't paid a particularly high share of china's growth fruits over the last few decades and they almost see it as their it's like their share is to actually have a bit of a longer retirement you know they didn't get those fruits of a cozy white collar kind of employment lifetime and so i think the political economy of The retirement age in China is a little more tricky because of that, just because there's such amazing educational inequalities. And I think perhaps they may need to. The problem is, you know, you have some people in Shanghai who are like, I don't want to retire when I turn, you know, 55. I've got at least 10 more years in me. But then you have uneducated people in, you know, manual labor workers who've earned almost, who've earned very little who are 50, 55 in somewhere like Gansu, and they say that they want to retire now. They're old and, and it's all over. But if you let the person in Shanghai keep working for five, 10 more years, then this ultimately might just foster increased inequality. So I think what needs to happen is a, a whole new array of taxes and redistribution. So if, for example, the retirement age in places like shanghai or tianjin or beijing or you know shenzhen is increased in line with people's education higher income desire to maybe work for a few more years especially educated women at least on average there might need to be some tax redistribution of their capacity to work longer Mm. to the poor who weren't educated and who can't work longer so this it it almost fits under the common prosperity theme and you know I, i see this part of the problem of of an upside down population pyramid is when you don't shift the way the pyramid works as the pyramid changes. Maybe there's just more need for kind of care systems and tax within cohorts as much as between cohorts. So these older, wealthier Chinese can help support the poorer older Chinese because there's a lot of old people and the rich ones can maybe support the poor ones and that numerically makes a bit more sense than asking a tiny few young people unless those young people are much much richer than the old people so yeah sorry i think that you just you need a, a quite a matrix approach but especially in china's case because the gap across time and people and education at the moment is is so different but you know by 2050 i just don't think that will be true i think the pension age will be unified people's lives will be more unified Mm-hmm. It this period is very, very unique.
3: So, Lauren, in terms of uh, national policy, can you provide some examples for, for reference or what actually made China learn from the experience of developed countries like Australia, your home country, and Germany, you currently live in?
0: Well, I think that there's probably a lot of lessons to learn from studying across the European Union, where Somewhere like France or Luxembourg or, you know, maybe Luxembourg is like Shanghai. It's like a wealthy little cluster. Yes. And it's quite old also, just like Shanghai is. And then Germany is perhaps Shandong or wherever, um, Zhejiang. And then you have the kind of like somewhere like Poland. I'm not sure the per capita income, but it's definitely it's, it's very high. It's well into the high income group. But older people in Poland are more comparable to older people in China in that when they were born, you know, Poland was not a market economy. They maybe had better education opportunities than older Chinese on average, but it wasn't a market economy and they didn't have the same opportunity to choose to make money in order to be wealthy when they were old. And actually this happens even within Germany, you know, East German pensioners are not as well off on average as West German pensioners. And that creates a whole lot of subtle policy requirements and shifts to kind of balance that inequality. You know, you can't have a unified nation without these kind of steady incremental shifts from the West of Germany, even still to this day, all these years later, Mm. just to top up the disadvantages of East Germans. And to me, that's like, in a way, China's coast is like West Germany and China's inland is like East Germany. So, you know, everyone's better off today, but there's still this lingering gap of, in China's case, the coastal development strategy. So I'm no way am I an expert in how Germany straddles that and what its policy mechanisms are. But it might be very useful to take a look at that and just see the way Germany manages and to treat West Germany as like coastal China and East as inland China. The Chat Lounge.
2: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: You are listening to the Chat Lounge, and we are talking about the challenges brought about by China's aging population. Mike, despite those, um, you know, disparities, there is this consensus probably reached around the globe is just to delay the retirement age for the citizens. I, I understand in the UK, um, the state pension age has risen to 66 for for both men and women. And it's expected to rise to 69. That's unbelievable. By 2039, right?
2: Yes, that's right. I mean, that that's the obvious, perhaps knee easier reaction to, to raise the retirement age, maybe gradually. And we'll see that, I'm sure, across globally and in the UK, most definitely. So those born um at a certain age i think i, I just qualify i say qualify will will not be retiring uh when we say retiring again this is coming back to lauren's very, very good point that um, it, it depends what you mean by that, that sort of financial nest egg. I think we're talking about, and, and this is largely very insignificant in the UK, mm. the state pension. So at the age of 65 now, it's going up to 67. And, and as you say, we'll go up higher, probably higher. And and for women the age of 60, normally, the state pension kicks in as long as you've contributed. I think something like 30, 30, 32 years of contributions, you get a state pension on top of your um Employment pension, but it normally is. It depends how you want to live and how you look at it. But it normally is a very, very small proportion of that. But, but yes, that that is something that I think will happen more and more. How effective that will be? Again, I think it will vary across countries. We're seeing now that in China, the the, the policies seem to be coming out that over the next few years, the retirement age will. Uh, increase uh, and perhaps by I think uh, f- for women unified at 55 by 2025 uh, and for men that will go up as well. How impactful that will be, I think it, it, it depends. I think um, a lot of good points were made about learning from different European countries. The problem we have in the UK is not so much raising the, the retirement age, mm-hmm. One of the key factors in the UK are childcare costs. Childcare costs are the highest in Europe. I think they're the lowest in Germany, maybe France as well. They are so prohibitively high that um, that's one reason why the fertility rate, the birth rate is so low. Parents just cannot afford to have perhaps a first child or a second child. And recent surveys have indicated that half of all adults in the UK will not have children at all. Uh, and a lot of it's got to do with the the cost of bringing up that child. So I think the retirement age, increasing that retirement age, is not necessarily going to have the, the impact that it might. And again, it depends on that financial nest egg and, and what's lying in wait. And that varies across industrial sectors as well, not not just um, age groups and geographical regions.
3: Yeah. But one thing amazed me is that how British people reached the consensus to postpone their retirement, you know, so well. Because here in China, after, it's not a, Strategy, but just uh, some um, policy orientation yeah. toward this uh, postponing right. retirement. Yeah. Uh, people here already, so, I can say yeah, I it's a think... huge row, but it's just a lot of dissatisfaction.
2: Yeah. Union, yeah. Yeah. Just respond to that. In the UK, I wouldn't say c- consensus. I think the government has just realized the government is, is the UK government is largely looking at the public debt and the government finances and mm. just saying that we can't which is not affordable. And therefore you have to work longer and contribute more before we're going to give you your state pension. And they're also saying look out more for your private pension, invest in private pensions and perhaps invest more in your company pension, which you can do in advance. But, so I would say consensus, but it, yeah. it hasn't had the, the sort of um street protest test reaction that it has had in, say, France, for example. Yeah. Yes, I agree.
3: And Yunyun, you know, that's a trend, but uh, can it be implemented or uh, integrated into law as um, smoothly as expected?
1: well you know what people are uh, dealing with that now yes um because before uh, every time in china before a policy has uh, been adopted there would be you know um, some sources um being put out on social media and people would comment on that so when you put out the policy intentions and people will start to to cope with the possible consequences, mm-hmm. and so you can see, people. Some people are, um, you know, have a little um, opposition to that policy of postponing the retirement age. But in my case, in my family, my parents are like, yeah, you, ha- you you need to work longer, but it doesn't really matter because you are not in this, you know, heavily labor um, like uh, occupation, and uh, you certainly look younger, and um, you know, compared with us during you know, when, when they were in their 40s. So I think people are coping with that. And before the policy is formally uh, implemented, and a lot of people, a lot of Chinese people would have already built up their um, mind and mm-hmm. say, well, if that's meant to be, and then let's do it. And they can look at the Western countries, the developed countries, and in Japan, for instance, even the eighty-year-olds are are driving a bus yes. or driving their own cars. So why can't us? Why can't China do the same thing? Mm-hmm. So people are coping with that, and I think this would, uh, it might not be that as smooth as we thought it be, but it will become. Um, it can be
3: implemented. Yeah, that's what I'm wondering. Are, are we going to you know brace for life without retirement like the Japanese do? Yeah, not, not, not just Japanese. I think uh,
1: uh, in European countries, and we can see people, uh, even in their senior ages, they're still working and they're happy. And working really
3: makes people happy. Apart from um, trying to delay the, the retirement age, the government, the Chinese government, obviously does something else, especially when it comes to encouraging birth rates. That's the two sides of uh, one issue. But um, how have we been doing in this regard, trying to stimulate birth uh, union?
1: Well, like uh, the other uh, two guests have mentioned, the, the cost of raising a child and the amount of effort that you need to put in, it's just too much. So I think it's, it's a society thing. When, when the society develops, when people are enjoying high level of education, they're not confined to their family, not family, but other stuff. So uh, I don't know, this this is a big problem, not just in China, but Mm. uh, but especially in developed world.
3: I think in Australia, uh, the scenario is a little bit different, right, uh, Lauren? Because I used to know an Australian lady who told me that her neighbor, uh, who's a a not single one, otherwise she wouldn't be able to have so many children. But she doesn't have to work and only uh, has to give birth to babies. And the the allowance or the subsidies given to her by the government are enough to support the entire family. So do you think it's realistic for China to copy that model?
0: Um, I don't think the share of children born in Australia under such circumstances is very high this is quite similar in most of Europe also there is very maybe the UK is a a bit less generous but the the life that that those subsidies allow is still quite minimal and you know it it means the children will have access to very minimal like the basic educational privileges Mm. probably no holidays no international travel and so I guess it does produce, of, of course, that it does enable children to have a, a pleasant life differently. Right. Um, but to qualify for those subsidies, one has to be quite poor, and so it doesn't work. To that doesn't apply to most of the population. So it may help support a few more births among. I mean, actually, what you see in many cases is that the number of people or the the people who have Many children are in Australia or at least and in Europe are either very poor or very rich because they can that the government will pay if you're very poor and if you're very rich, you can afford all the help to raise all those children and give them a good life. but the people in the middle don't have many children, so I guess I'm not strictly convinced the Chinese government wants a you know a, a hugely elevated total fertility rate, but somewhere they need to make the middle a bit easier, perhaps. I mean, if they want lots of children at the lower end, then that policy in Australia would work, but they don't have that many people at the lower end. And the whole point of the last 40 years was to give people elevated living standards. So that's almost going back to 1950s and 1960s. Why do that? I think it's better to adjust. There's a bit of a, maybe a dishonesty to some extent, and especially in Europe. And the West, you know, like China got old before it got rich.
3: Yeah.
0: And the West got old after it got rich. Mm -hmm. And so in the West you have a relatively a historically well-off older generation in terms of their housing wealth, in terms of their pensions, in terms of their lifestyles and their expectancy. And, And I think there's not enough attention paid to how much cohorts weigh on the next cohort like it's not just the immediate cost of living it's like if you look in australia and the uk now they, they're calculating the number of empty bedrooms and so you have you know young people who can't afford to have children and then you have these whole suburbs and this is true in berlin as much as melbourne and, and london mm. where old people sit in a four-bedroom house and they only use one bedroom and almost the government subsidizes a cleaner to help them as an old person keep their four bedroom home clean. So there's a lot of mismatch has at, like between all these things. It's not just the cost of living per se, but the problem is indeed making change feasible because people have different expectations, they have different sense of entitlement. You know, if you tell a, a middle-class baby boomer Their retirement shouldn't involve, you know, free public transport, even if they're incredibly well off and paying for it would damage them not at all. They will protest in the streets. But for a much like somebody who who died twenty years ago, that would have just been a crazy privilege. Or for someone tomorrow, they may think, well, by the time we get to that age, then we won't have that anyway. And so, one thing I think China did do well is in the 1980s it came up with the concept of getting old before getting rich. And over the last three, four decades it's used this kind of, you know, know, old before rich mantra to tell the large cohort that by the time they're old, China won't be rich. And so what that means is that we can't promise you a generous pension, we can't promise you generous healthcare, we can't promise you generous anything in old age, because China won't be rich. And if we promise you all of that, then China's development will stall. And in Japan, and in Europe, and in America, and so on, all of these countries were aging also, but they were all aging as old after rich countries. And instead of saying to that baby boomer cohort, you know, when you guys are old, you're going to be a huge weight on the country. And in order not to derail your countries, we have to minimize it. So I think you have to extremes where now the older population in the west is over entitled over endowed over promised they're a huge burden in a much bigger more intangible way and in china's case they've almost undershot so you have a lot of super poor older people you know they were never promised much so how you balance all that out over time i i don't know but it's it sure helps if you every census For example, there should be a huge conversation about how tax changes, Mm. how everything changes, like housing tax on bedrooms or whatever. Like, it's just crazy, the allocation of resources across cohorts.
3: If largely increasing welfare is not an option, cannot be afforded at this moment, then there is another option where maybe the only option left is to, to import foreign labor. Is that so?
0: Lauren. Um, well, that's yeah. Sorry, uh, going back to your, uh, the original comment on on Australia and welfare. Well, Australia does both. I add. Australia imports a lot of foreign foreign labour, so Australia is trying all these pots. Um, and maybe twenty years ago, they also gave a baby bonus to, to encourage more more babies, and that delivered some. Mm. But um, on foreign labour, I think every country has their own history and their own issues with that you know, for Canada, America, Australia, that's their foundation. It's always been what they are. It's always been our identity and migration just goes up and down over time according to the needs of the economy. And mm. that's exactly what their national identity in the modern world is. Mm. You're saying I think for, for China, Japan, Europe, these older countries, I think that's a little more tricky on a political economy level people have a different type of identity and for those countries like Japan is only now just opening up you know doors to some Filipino and Indian and Indonesian nurses to help care for the old but they're certainly not kind of flinging open the doors. I think every country needs to find its own workable balance between migration, between offshoring labor intensive industries to countries that still have a lot of young people so for example china is sending textile factories where you still need people to bangladesh or ethiopia so and then adoption of technology at home to reduce labor requirements and what you were saying before i mean even here this working late you know when i when i was a kid in australia supermarkets and things like you know general stores and um department stores the people working on the cash register were all young they were like students working after school or on weekends or so on. And increasingly, and especially here in Germany, if you go to the supermarket and buy your groceries, almost always the person who you go through the tilt will be someone who's in their 60s or or even a bit older, like it's an older person's job. So there have been adaptions. And I think the basket of adaptions for every country will include some migration, but the migration will vary I mean, and in China's case, the migration even can be internal.
3: Mm.
0: You just have to allow more rights for migrant workers in Shanghai and so on. So I, I think it's a basket approach. And each country's approach to migration will reflect their own peculiarities. The Chat Lounge.
2: The Chat Lounge unpacks views and opinions on hot issues in a more casual way.
3: That's the question I think a lot of people are asking. You know, Britain are taking in a lot of um, migrant workers, international migrant workers. So does uh, Germany, Australia, and a lot of countries, a lot of other countries. And now it's Japan. Yun, -yun, why can't China, or what has been preventing China from doing more in this regard?
1: You mean importing more labor? Yes. uh, Well, uh, I think uh, like uh, Lauren just mentioned, uh, there are... China typically is not a country of immigrants. Mm. And uh, also, uh, like Lauren said, we have uh, a lot of young labor uh, from the countryside and from the uh, western or central part of China. But the thing is, when we're talking about an aging population, people are getting old. We're looking, where's... Looking at it from a proportional like uh, 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 a sense, like proportionally, the people, the older people are getting uh, like 30% of the population. But if we look at the absolute number of the young people or the senior citizens, still we have a lot of uh, young labor forces in China. So if we make good use of them and educate them well, and um, learn, uh, let them learn many skills, and then I think the country can support itself.
3: Mike, what's your understanding of this issue? A lot of expats that actually living here in China are complaining that why can't we get this permanent residence so that I can, you know, contribute more to the society, right, if I'm a permanent resident here in this country?
2: Yeah, no, they are. Yeah, friends of mine are. I I, mean, I lived and worked there, which wasn't that like long ago, and for quite some time. It, it was noticeable that it was it was quite difficult to do that. A few of my friends actually got um, what they called the Chinese green card, but it was very, very difficult mm. uh, indeed. And we thought we thought perhaps too difficult. So maybe that yes, that is a way forward that will. Um, of- alleviate uh, some of the stress and, and I think there are lots of expats who are very and I, I was one of them very happily settled and would like to co- contribute more and also move to other parts of China as well outside first tier cities so I think that is an opportunity perhaps the central government and others should explore and they may find that that is actually far easier and far more beneficial than they realise and, and, and not really be a little bit wary of that maybe a little bit wary because as the, the other panellists have said it is a, a different has a different history and in terms of um, foreign labour and, and uh, imported foreign labor he doesn't have that unlike perhaps European countries like the UK for example but there's no reason why that can't start soon and also develop in an orderly way and, and help a lot so yeah I think that's that's very, very much um, an option. Mm-hmm. I think generally, we're, I think we're coming to the end now. I think what we've really got to do and what this this, this problem really needs is, but um, we're looking at the economics here and, and the financial costs and a lot of numbers. I think we need, it it's a sociological perspective. I think the other panelists have said, it really depends on what people are expecting out of life, the quality of life. Uh, and environmentalists, for example, in this country are actually saying that a smaller population could be a good thing. It will reduce carbon emissions, could improve the quality of life, and that the gap in the labor force will be, will be filled largely by computer computerization, technological advance, robots. So I think a sociological perspective is needed across different countries. And I think that's where we need to look at how we need to look at it in China as well.
3: Mm. And you use emphasize exploring uh, the potential of the younger generation, no matter uh, whether they are educated or not. But uh, in the long run, at some point, we'll have to, or eventually lose the restrictions or even speed up this import of uh, international migrant uh, labors, right?
1: Um well I I I still uh you have doubt on that would be yeah I really doubt because take a look at South Korea and uh, Japan we all have this kind of asian culture and it's not a typical like immigration country I mean on large scale mm, uh, it is not but in Hong Kong there are a lot of uh, a Filipino and Indian nurses and taking care of the family and the elderly but if if that's going to happen to the Chinese mainland I think it might take a lot longer for you know this kind of mentality is is different take a look at Japan there aren't um, many foreign faces in a Japanese society. People are taking perfectly care of themselves. The real problem is not about people getting old, it's it's about who should be their primary caregiver, who could take care of them when they're sick or they're bedridden. I think that's the biggest challenge in a family. So. In terms of the young people, like what we say, we take care of ourselves, and we don't, we don't want to burden our child for our own benefits. That's the Chinese mentality.
3: Right, right. But uh, if the population keeps shrinking, who are we going to find those that at the proper age to take care of the elderly?
1: You know what I, uh, what I've been thinking. Uh, mm. The only thing that fears me uh, much is. The pain that I have to go through if I'm sick. I don't worry about uh, pension. Uh, I'm not worried about uh, uh, insurance. I just worry about the pain. Right. So, um, you know, there is um, very good practice that we might uh, import uh, from. I think it's Netherlands. Uh, they have um, what we call euthanasia or mercy killing, and uh, no. Uh, That's a topic uh, not for today, but I'm just saying it's not a big problem. Uh, We can cope with it, and we're now introducing another pension fund to cover uh, people's uh, living expenses when they're in their uh, senior years. We can cope with the problem uh, quite well, and Mm. you know what? The reduced population would be good for the earth.
3: Um, (laughs) That's another way to look at the issue.
1: It's, it's, yes, we, we need to look at this and in, in, from a broader um, perspective.
3: Yeah, but yep, let's f- focus on this, uh, our topic today, which is, uh, you know, the challenges, I wouldn't say the crisis, as um, Lauren just said, it's not yet a crisis, but the challenges facing China's, um, you know, old aged group or the uh, shrinking population and this um, increasing aging society, but an important uh, pillar. To, to solve this problem, as you've already mentioned, is about this uh, pension. You need to have money for medical care, for daily necessities, uh, while you don't have this ability to, to work. So the country last year introduced officially introduced this private pension. So Lauren, from your research, how useful is it for China to introduce this private pension at this time? Is it
0: too late? I think the private pension was introduced now because perhaps China's financial sector is ready for it in the sense of it's it's quite sophisticated now and so on. And I think also precisely because this enormous layer of Chinese citizens born in the 50s and 60s is entering retirement and they didn't have enormous income opportunities. They may have made money on housing and stuff, but their actual income salary was not typically very high. So there wasn't a lot of spare income for them to necessarily add to a private pension. And it's also very difficult for the government to increase everybody's pension requirements into the pooled fund because of income inequality. You know, some people are are earning a lot and others aren't earning much. And then if the government creates different tracks, like too many different tracks within the pooled system, that can create all sorts of inequality issues and so on. So I think they have created this private track now, both all because the financial sector is ready. There is a layer of younger middle-class Chinese who are earning well enough to top up and and take out some extra income and put it into a pension fund. Mm -hmm. And then... I think and I believe these private pensions are somewhat being set up so that some of the returns of the private pension funds can top up the pension funds of, you know, today's pension funds, anywhere where it's unsustainable. But somehow some of the revenue and profits made by those pension funds can be used to top up struggling pension funds maybe. I'm not sure. Mm -hmm. So I, I don't think it's the answer to the pension crisis, I think it's an aspect that caters to some better-off elites. Right. That makes sense, that it, it makes sense now to do that.
3: And what do you think should be the answer? Some people are saying that it's necessary to, to cut down, you know, the high pensions of those working in the public sector, as um, they actually hold several times the pensions of uh, grassroots employees. And people are complaining the pension system mainly benefits the redundant civil servant groups, which only account for a small proportion of the population. Do you think that's a viable solution?
0: The UK in particular has had this debate. Some UK civil servants have remarkably comfortable pensions, and they have them for an, a, a, an, like two or three decades. So mm. even NHS doctors, for example, can can receive a pension of, I'm told, over £100,000, every year for 25 years 30 years but people say they work for the public sector because of that total life cycle benefit that otherwise they would have not worked for the public sector and gone to work for the private sector and made more money Mm. if they weren't going to be compensated later so there's all sorts of criteria that go into that I think you know back in the day this is a much more a kind of a bigger abstract comment sure you know back in the day of Malthus Thomas Malthus which is like 200 years ago or something there were a lot of young people in Europe also and fears about food security fears about plagues and wars and so on and the agricultural productivity was linear linear in growth but that population growth was compound or exponential and therefore the food supply couldn't keep up, i.e. productivity couldn't keep up with population growth. And humans responded to that You know, In most places now, there's too much food, there's more obesity than hunger, not everywhere. And so I think it's just a question also of, and that's changed in the last year or two, this really common understanding that the population pyramid has turned upside down. And so instead of a Malthusian trap being that there's too many young people, Now there's a lot of old people and the risk is that they take enough resources and space and dynamism out of the economy that they actually age the economy and hopefully there will be ways to collectively respond. And if I can just say one more Mm. point, I, I think there's a lot of opportunity that hasn't been explored for the young old to be basically trained to help care for the old old. Right. Like, you know, back in... Back in the 60s and 70s, China had these barefoot doctors. And, you know, that these were not, you know, Beijing United Hospital or Peking University Hospital trained level doctors, but they had enough skills to help keep people alive. And perhaps just there needs to be a kind of a barefoot doctor army again for aged care and community support and so on. And it can be the young old who are most available, like people, retired people in their 60s and 70s, they can provide some services for people in their 80s and 90s who can't do that for themselves. And, you know, that pyramid seems to match because that's where people have the time, that's where the the population numbers match. So I think there needs to be lots more institutions of just setting up so that young, old can support the old, old,
3: Mm.
0: as well as, you know, bringing in foreign labour you know, I, I saw a film a week ago, a Finnish film, and it was exactly about this, about the aged care crisis in Finland. And they had, like, retired people singing, literally singing a song that they are the sustainability gap, they are the problem, you know, but at the same time, they're human beings. And, um, you know, the, one of the, the ladies who made the, the film was talking about the need to bring in much more foreign labour, and so on but obviously they people don't speak finnish and so on. anyway just it's really not a china problem but um it just takes a lot more flexibility and including i think of the young old to be more involved in the care of the old old, I think mm. that's the only thing that makes sense, including in China's case. Uh, Yun, how does that sound to you?
3: Yeah, I believe
1: this is true. And another thing that I want to mention to solve the labor our crisis, if there is any, is that uh, look at the uh, artificial intelligence oh, yes. and to look at the you know how much the robots can do. So I, I think uh, the thing is the Chinese government. Well, when we were having this family planning policies taking place like forty years ago. Uh, I think the government, you know, they have been planning for the future and they've seen the trends, seeing our modernization levels and seeing how we can utilize all the resources like the, the machines and the robots. And I think for people to make... Um, the, the thing that I'm trying to say is... the age I agree, And I agree is...
2: with what you're saying.
1: Mm. Thank you. <laughs>
2: <laughs> Just a joke my memory, Driving us cars, a friend of mine was saying, it's good to have children who can drive you around when you're older. Um, and another friend who's an IT professional chipped in and said, by that time there'll be driverless cars, you know, in the same way we are seeing yeah. electric cars take off. So we won't need people to drive us around, but the car will do the driving. So I think this sort of change, this revolutionary uh, technology change has to be factored into this and often isn't.
3: Yeah. Maybe next time or another episode, we will talk about the, the opportunities this aging society could bring to us. And, um, Last question. Um, Lauren, you've mentioned this barefoot doctors. It's been quite a while since we last heard this uh, phrase. brings a lot of um, memories. But do you think the Chinese government is on the right track to solving the demographic problem?
0: I'm sure they're trying and they're balancing all just an amazing array of variables across time, across cohorts, across geographies. Um, I think it's a work in progress. I don't think there is a solution per se. I think it's something to manage over time and shift things around. Um, One uncertainty and a a new innovation that I think may shift some aspects of ageing in China Mm. and this risk of poverty and so on among older people is the digital currency as it begins to be emerged because you can give people welfare that's very, very fixed for purpose. So, you know, at like 20 years ago, you can, you'd say, okay, we'll give you some money for healthcare and food, but you have to, unless you give people a physical voucher, when you send money to their bank account, they can just save it or do whatever they want with that money. They don't have to spend it on what you've, what you've hoped they would. But with a digital currency, you can say, okay, well, you can have an extra 200 RMB every month for healthcare but it can only be spent on healthcare, or it can only be spent on groceries in these shops or it can only be spent wherever on aged care services. So I, I think the digital currency will allow for allocations of money that weren't possible in the past that will be more affordable precisely because they can be so fixed for purpose. And then if you don't spend them on that it, the money just disappears it, it disappears from your bank account you know a month or two later so there's no fear the government can drive that protection in the most direct way that wasn't possible before mm-hmm. so i think that's a bit of a black box for how china will navigate the cost of aged care and the fairness of old age pensions and subsidies and then it just, can they get the cost of health care down that will also be a big issue. But I don't think there's a solution. I think this is like a, a challenging process everywhere. And it's more a question of juggling all the balls. And I think they're putting a lot of resources into trying to juggle them well.
3: It's quite a illuminating, though you're saying it's not the final solution. But to Union, do you think we are on the right track? And probably the suggestions you may have for, you know, the government, given, you know, the two sessions are or upcoming, and uh, there will be a lot of um, advice made to the authorities.
1: Yes, uh, I think if I have to make one suggestion, uh, uh, that would be to give people the right policy expectations. Mm. If we're going to do something, we need to explain. The policy well and before we implement them. And as for the Asian population, I think there is a silver lining behind every, uh, what we call, problem. As we can develop the silver economy, we we, we can make this, um, you know, there will be 30% of the population will be um, senior citizens and we can develop a new economy dedicated to serving the senior citizens. For the upcoming two sessions uh, in terms of population, let me be very frank. The supporting policies like uh, what we call allowances given to the uh, third uh, child uh, won't do much mm. to help spur um, the, the birth rate. Mm. And the thing is we need to establish a comprehensive family supporting a mechanism like who should be taking care of the newborns, yes. um, after when they're uh, one year old and, you know, set the mother free. And, and um, you know, um, we, we can do a lot of supporting policies. Other from that, uh, uh, let the robots do their job. <laughs>
3: <laughs> That's a good one. And um, Mike, um, your interpretation from the UK perspective, probably.
2: I, I think in the, in the short, my perspective from the UK mm. is that, and this will be replicated around the world in the short, very short term. We need to see greater investment in healthcare, particularly child care costs, particularly for those uh, on lower incomes and those in poorer parts of the UK. And, and we have real poverty in the UK now by, by global standards and the same in China. So you, you talk about the two sessions coming up. Hopefully there'll be positive announcements on even greater investment and, and, and more um, resources into health care for the elderly and child care costs for those on poorer and lower incomes, so so the the health sector in the very short term must be the focal point.
3: Yes, um, an Asian society is not something to fear of, um, as long as all elderly people are to be provided for and enjoy proper medical care, to be given opportunities to pass on their experience, and to be given the opportunity to do what they can for the society while enjoying a dignified retirement. And on that note, we wrap up today's chat. Many thanks to Dr. Lauren Johnston, associate professor at the China Studies Center, University of Sydney. Liu Yun, Associate Editor-in-Chief of Beijing Review, and Mike Bastin, China Observer and Senior Lecturer at the University of Southampton in the UK for sharing your insights with us. Please feel free to leave a review or a comment for us, and subscribe to The Chat Lounge, wherever you get your favorite podcasts. I'm Tuyun, thank you for being with us.